Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Resistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, it's that time of year. Cold and flu season is officially upon us. It's pretty normal for us to get sick around this time of year, especially when so many of us work in office environments where we're in close quarters with many different people breathing the same recycled air. It's like a game of Russian roulette trying not to get sick. And once you are sick, In my experience, anyway, there's no lack of opinions about what you should do, what steps you should take, what medications you should try, what old-world remedies that someone's grandmother swears by that are sure to fix you right up. One old phrase that I still remember hearing plenty as a kid was feed a cold, starve a fever. I remember hearing it often enough that it stuck with me throughout the years. And, not surprisingly, it turns out there's not a whole lot of truth to it. Sure, feeding a cold gives your body the energy it needs to get better, but starving yourself is a cure for, well, just about nothing. That's not to say that careful fasting under the right conditions can't have some health benefits. But there's a fine line between fasting and starvation. One that can mean the difference between life and death. And few places can attest to the razor thinness of that line, like the picturesque little town of Olala, Washington can. It's a tragic history 
that most of the locals would sooner keep in the dust and cobwebs of the deepest parts of their collective memory. But the darker the stain, the harder they are to wash away or cover up. Winding our way through the little town of Olala, we find ourselves at the end of a small lane. There isn't much left on the property now. Trees and vines choke what little remains of the old cottage that once stood at the end of the lane. But pain and suffering have a way of leaving a lasting mark, and the uneasy tension in the air feels as if it's leached into the very soil of the place. Makes you feel heavy, uncomfortable, raises the hairs on your neck and arms. But when Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard moved to the property with her husband in the early 1900s, it was full of promise. She had big plans. Dreams of building a huge sanitarium where she could share her miracle cure-all with the world. Back in her home state of Minnesota, you see, she discovered the secret to curing all disease. A simple old trick that, if applied right, could heal any ailment, from paralysis to organ failure, cancer to pneumonia. Her argument was simple. The sole source of bodily ills is impure blood, she said. And the cause of impure blood is imperfect digestion. So what's the best way to reset the digestive system? Well, according to Dr. Hazard, just stop eating. It didn't take long for Hazard's little clinic to gain popularity after she set up shop in Seattle's Pike Place Market. Not unlike the wealthy and famous people of today, those with money to spare were always on the lookout for new ways to become healthier, fitter, and more attractive. And Seattle was a progressive city. New treatments and novel concepts were embraced far more easily than they would have been back in Minnesota. More and more people began to engage the services of the doctor, either for proactive health or to treat diseases and acute medical conditions. And between the popularity of the clinic and the publishing of her book, Hazard began to make quite a name for herself. Problem was, not all of the publicity was good publicity. The public was beginning to notice that far too few of Hazard's patients finished their treatments, and headed home healthy. In fact, some of her patients never made it home at all. By the start of 1911, at least eight people had died under her care, virtually all of them from starvation. In the hopes of moving away from prying eyes, Dr. Hazard began bringing many of her patients back to her home in Alala, which she'd begun to refer to as a sanitarium she called Wilderness Heights. Now, let me backtrack for a minute. Calling Hazard a doctor might be a bit misleading. I'm sure it would have been for her patients, too. She didn't actually have a medical degree, and no real experience with medicine either. But she was licensed to practice medicine in Washington State, the result of a loophole designed to allow practitioners of alternative medicine to work in the state. Not exactly how you want your doctor to have gained their credentials, that's for sure. But I suppose, in fairness, Hazard's treatments were definitely alternative. 
So, what were the treatments like, you ask? Well, thanks to Earl Edward Erdman, a civil engineer with the city of Seattle and a patient of hazards, we have a pretty good idea. Erdman kept a journal outlining the diet, as well as the other more invasive treatments. During his roughly two-month stay, most of his days consisted of a cup or so of thin tomato broth twice a day, with the occasional orange thrown in. Some days, even less. As if living off of nothing but thin tomato soup weren't difficult enough, Hazard performed what more than one source I found referred to as vigorous enemas on her patients, sometimes lasting for hours at a time. And in addition to that, they'd receive massages, massages that more closely resembled beatings, really, where she'd flail her fists over the heads and backs of her patients yelling, Eliminate! Eliminate! Not the most relaxing medical retreat you could imagine. Reading through Erdman's simple, concise entries, it's hard not to feel a mixture of hope and fear riding just below the surface. Each day, his body seems to ache more, and his mind becomes gradually muddier, lacking the proper fuel to operate. But there seemed this desire to power through that he was sure in the end it would help him in some way. Erdman entered Hazard's care on February 1st and was hospitalized on March 28th. He died the same afternoon of starvation. Erdman wasn't the first casualty of Hazard's extreme treatment, though, and he'd be far from the last. But while it could be easy to argue that Hazard was simply misguided in her attempts to help others, when she accepted a pair of twin, wealthy British heiresses in 1911, her darker motives became clear. When Claire and Dora Williamson arrived at Wilderness Heights, they were excited to try the radical new treatment they'd heard so much about. There was nothing exactly wrong with either of them health-wise, but Hazard's promises of prolonged youthful vitality and extended life, well, they were intriguing to say the least. Almost immediately upon their arrival, though, the twin sisters were separated. In complete isolation from one another, they began their treatment, each day being slightly more difficult than the last. And each day, Claire began to question more and more the methods of her caregiver. But by the time she was able to vocalize her concerns, she was too weak to walk, too weak to fight back. Taking advantage of her weakened physical and mental state, Hazard convinced Claire to sign a document giving a huge share of the women's inherited wealth to the doctor and promising their bodies to the exclusive care and disposal of Dr. Hazard. Not long afterward, Hazard had a surprise visitor at Wilderness Heights. Claire and Dora's childhood nanny had come to check up on them and see how their treatments were going. She'd been skeptical from the start, and her suspicions were already raised when she failed to hear from either of the sisters after their arrival at Wilderness Heights. While the welcome the nanny received from Hazard was warm enough, her blood ran cold as soon as the doctor began to explain the condition of the two women she'd come to see. 
Claire, she said, putting on a hollow air of sadness, had unfortunately succumbed to illness and passed away just a short time ago. And Dora, well, she was in poor condition herself. Certainly no condition to have visitors, and far from in any state to leave. And that's when the nanny noticed, through tears of shock and grief, Hazard's attire. She had thought when she first walked in the door that the silk dress Hazard wore looked familiar, and her hat, too. But now that she was closer to the woman, had had some time to examine, she was certain they were Claire's. The nanny left, and shortly after, the women's uncle showed up as well. He proved to be much more persuasive. When he finally forced his way into Dora's quarters, he found her weak and emaciated, barely conscious and unable to move, weighing just sixty pounds. Her sister Claire, they later discovered, had died at less than half the weight she'd entered treatment at, weighing only fifty pounds. Once the story got out, and after pressure from the British government forced a trial and investigation, the depths of Hazard's criminal activity became clear. She and her husband had forged documents, stolen valuables, and manipulated patients to gain access to their wealth. She'd even forged a diary entry to give the illusion Claire wished Hazard to have her diamond jewelry. But it wasn't just the sisters who had been manipulated. There were several patients, including a number that had succumbed to starvation, that Hazard had manipulated in this way. Linda Hazard was convicted of manslaughter for the death of Claire Williamson in 1912, but served only two years before receiving a pardon. She then moved to New Zealand, where she starved more people to death with her treatments, before deciding, for some reason, to move back to Olala. With her newly acquired wealth, she built the massive sanitarium she'd always dreamed of. But her reputation wasn't what it once was. Being responsible for more than a dozen deaths and serving a term in prison, well, they have a habit of tarnishing your reputation. And while the new Wilderness Heights sanitarium was in itself a marvel with over a hundred beds, very few patients turned up. When the sanitarium burned down in 1935, only twelve out of the hundred beds had patients. I can't imagine the community of Olala was sad to see it go, either. Their proximity to the horrors committed at the sanitarium, which had earned the nickname Starvation Heights by the locals, was enough to make anyone uncomfortable. In fact, one woman who grew up in the area distinctly remembers as a child watching the occasional escapee from the facility wandering through the forest into town, moaning and delirious, their bodies pale and skeletal. I can't help but draw a comparison in my mind to the classic shambling zombie, the living dead. And for many of them, that's exactly what they were. All told, Linda Hazard and her treatment for disease cost at least 15 people their lives. Actually, let's make that 16, I suppose. If you consider that three years after Starvation Heights burned to the ground, 
Linda Hazard herself succumbed to starvation while undergoing one of her own fasts. I guess you could say she got a taste of her own medicine. Now, let's fill up on some fiction. We have one story for you this evening, which comes to us from Timothy Mudie. Timothy Mudie is a speculative fiction writer and an editor of multiple genres. In addition to Tales to Terrify, his fiction has appeared in Lightspeed, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Interzone, Wastelands, The New Apocalypse, and various other magazines, anthologies, and podcasts. He lives outside of Boston with his wife and son. Find him online at timothymudy.com. Children of the Night, join me for Timothy Mudie's Rat's Alley, a Tales to Terrify original. Dean didn't know much about rats, but he did know this. There was never just one. If you can see one rat, there are probably ten more somewhere close, wedged into cracks between buildings and sidewalks, burrowed under the nearest patch of dirt. Now, standing on his fire escape three stories above the alley, cigarette pinched between his fingers, he watched two rats fighting over a scrap of something. Pizza crust, maybe. There was a pizza joint just around the corner. One of the selling points when Dean moved in. Pizza, convenience store, liquor store, all within walking distance. It wasn't a big city that he lived in, though it abutted one. A short subway ride away from Genuine Alley's 20-story apartment buildings. The alley behind the three-decker where Dean lived was a glorified driveway. A place for tenants to toss garbage bags and Dean to flick his stubbed-out cigarettes. Which he did the orange pinprick tumbling through the air until it hit the pavement below, sending up a shower of sparks a few feet from the rats. They didn't even pause their tussle. He ducked to look in the living room window, which he'd crawled out of to smoke. The clock on the cable box said 3.27. He really needed to get to bed, he thought. Except he realized he didn't. Tomorrow was his first day of unemployment. His first day since his dream job decided that they needed a team restructuring and that whatever new form the team took, Dean was being abandoned. He lit another cigarette and watched the rats. Maybe he could find a job as a pizza chef. Maybe he could be a rat catcher. Or maybe he could jump off the fire escape. Few cars drove past the end of the alley this late at night. Not many people passed by either. Though on weekends, sometimes kids from the nearby college would cut through on their way to the nearest bar. Which is why Dean immediately noticed both a car's headlights brightening the dim light from the corner street lamp, and a hunched body rushing down the alleyway straight into their path. Where did the person come from? It was like they'd coalesced from the shadows, the ghost of a hit-and-run victim reenacting their final moments. But Dean didn't believe in ghosts, and the person wasn't slowing down as they approached the road. Yo! Dean called, unable to think of any other words. Yo! The person didn't slow, 
They hopped from the sidewalk into the street and stood facing the oncoming headlights, arms spread as if to give the car a hug. The headlights abruptly skewed sideways, and a second later a car appeared at the mouth of the alley, the rear fishtailing, the tires screeching and skidding across the pavement. It slowed, but not quickly enough, and the passenger's side crunched hard into the streetlight. Everything was quiet then, the pregnant hush following a clap of thunder or a gunshot. For a second, Dean stood on his fire escape, forgotten cigarette burning towards his fingers. Something snapped on in Dean's brain then. He tossed his cigarette, rushed down to the fire escape while pulling his phone from his pocket and calling 911. By the time he reached the car, lights were flickering in surrounding windows, but only Dean had been awake and prepared. He steadied the middle-aged woman who'd got out of the car, helped her sit on the sidewalk, waited with her until the paramedics and police came. She and Dean both gave their statements, each describing an indistinct body that came out of nowhere. Said body was nowhere to be found. In the chaos of the crash and its aftermath, neither Dean nor the driver saw which direction the person ran to. In fact, as Dean thought back, he didn't remember seeing the person run at all, as if they had just melted away into the darkness. He thought about this and dismissed it as he smoked one final cigarette before bed. Tried to dismiss it anyway. The person should have been hit by the car. Even though the driver tried to avoid them, she couldn't have. The person was just too close. Dean shuddered and took one last long drag, staring down into the alley below. Two little red lights glowed back at him. He watched them for a long moment. He tried to shake the feeling that they were watching him back. They looked like two lit cigarettes. But Dean had smoked for more than a decade. Cigarettes didn't blink. The next morning, Dean woke ten minutes after his alarm normally would have gone off, and spent a long time staring at the bare ceiling before he turned onto his side and stared at the bare wall. Residual excitement from last night's heroism percolated, but he had no one to share it with. Over the last couple of years, his friends had moved away for work or to the suburbs as they started families. And yeah, while he could call or text, they'd drifted apart for so long now that unexpectedly getting in touch with them just to chat would probably come off as weird. He considered going into his old office to say hello and tell the story, but worried he wouldn't be welcomed. Did the security desk have his picture and instructions not to let him upstairs? Would he be escorted out like an aggressive panhandler who'd wandered inside? And what if he ran into Helen, who had assured him that his work was fine, only not in line with what she was looking for now that she was team leader? Humiliation and shame rose. He couldn't take that chance. Finally, sometime around noon, he pulled himself from the bed threw on yesterday's jeans and a fresh t-shirt, and walked to the pizza shop. There, he ordered two slices of pepperoni and said, casually, as you please, You, uh, hear about that accident last night? The cashier shook his head, and Dean was off. Anyone would have done it, he said when he finished, and I couldn't just stand there. When the guy behind the counter disagreed and told him how cool Dean had been, how he would have been totally freaked out, Dean just shrugged. The warmth and light of the guy's admiration sustained him throughout lunch. Then he left them, trudged up three flights of stairs to an empty apartment, and deflated a little more with each step. 
The next two days, he spent lying on the couch watching Storage Wars reruns, leaving his apartment only to buy cigarettes and beer. Smoking on his balcony at night, he watched the college kids cut through the alley and prayed for an accident, a mugging, a freak lightning strike. But no one needed his help. And eventually, he fell asleep on the couch and the cycle would repeat. Insistent scratching at the window woke Dean. And if he hadn't been mostly asleep, he might have had the presence of mind not to open it. Instead, he sat up, leaned across the arm of the couch, and jiggled the window along its misaligned runners. Glare from the light in his apartment kept him from seeing outside until the window opened, and even then he saw nothing waiting on the other side. Nothing but the night. Something rushed through the window, though, and Dean stumbled back, fell on his ass. The apartment filled with sounds that were familiar, but he couldn't exactly place. Dry rustling, like someone rapidly sweeping a broom across a wooden floor. High-pitched tinkling of fingernails rippling along the side of a wine glass. Shallow breathing, and puffs from someone plumping a pillow. The room's temperature seemed to rise a few degrees, and all around Dean smelled sweet and damp and rotten. The fall jolted him fully awake but he swore he was dreaming when he saw the thing standing in front of him. It was a person of sorts. A man, but composed entirely of rats. Squirming tails formed his lips. Each tooth inside his wide-grinning mouth was a tiny rat head. Furry brown and gray and black and white bodies fused together to form the rest of his face, and continued into his neck, his shoulders, his torso and legs. Paws sprouted from the wriggling forms, their minuscule clawed toes flexing languidly. A face tapered to a long, twitching snout, and just above that, two fire-orange eyes glowed, staring directly at Dean. Half-words tumbled from Dean's lips as he stammered and stuttered at the man. When the man spoke, his voice burbled and crackled like his vocal cords were tinfoil, his tongue saran wrap. Hey, pal. Got a smoke? The rat man crouched down and offered him a hand up. Dean accepted it. You want to make a friend, don't do something for them. Ask them for a favor, the rat man said. It sounds backward, don't it? None of you understand how easy you are to manipulate. He slapped Dean jovially on the back with a hand formed of countless paws and limbs and teeth. Without thinking... Dean reached to the end table next to the couch, grabbed his pack of cigarettes and lighters, and handed them to the rat man. <laughs> Much obliged, the rat man said, winking an ember eye and lighting a cigarette. Thoughts couldn't coalesce in Dean's brain. He felt blindsided, ambushed, utterly thrown off kilter, exactly the way he felt when he stepped into Helen's office for their weekly check-in meeting, and there was another woman sitting there, someone he didn't recognize but who had the buttoned-up corporate look of human resources. Anger welled up in him. This was his apartment. Whatever this thing was, he couldn't just barge into Dean's home and demand cigarettes, and then smoke inside. Who the hell do you think you are? Dean asked, a question he'd thought a million times in the last week. About himself. About Helen. Now about this guy. The rat man smiled so wide it looked like his mouth would wrap around his entire head. Each tiny head inside his mouth smiled equally as wide. 
Dean imagined that inside each of those mouths were even tinier rats smiling the same way, an infinity of grinning rodents. His heartbeat rose and he swallowed bile. Sticking his hand out to shake, the rat man said, Call me Norway. He cocked his head expectantly, waiting for Dean to take his hand, which he pumped vigorously when Dean did. Great, great, great. Say, you uh, got any snacks? Without waiting for an answer, Norway crossed the half-dozen steps to the apartment's kitchen and began rifling through the cabinets. He emerged with a bag of corn chips and a tub of cheese puffs. Ah, perfect. Digging a paw into one bag, then the other, stuffing handfuls into his mouth, while the other brought the cigarette to his mouth every few seconds for a puff. Crumbs trickled from his snout and stuck to his fur. He talked while he chewed his rapid-fire patter not letting Dean get in a word, steamrolling any objections of the situation's bizarreness. Man, oh man, I knew you would be good. The other night, you know, I'm so used to just fucking things up, right? It's kind of my thing. But then you come running down, throwing off my game, and I'm not gonna lie, but I was pissed. But then that feeling, you know what I'm talking about. That puffed up, everyone should be thanking me feeling. Oh man, that was delicious. What do you want? Dean asked, somehow making himself speak. Watching the rat man in his kitchen, eating his junk food. It seemed almost reasonable. The last few weeks had been a blur, everything feeling slightly unreal. This was just a different order of magnitude. The rat man named Norway took a long drag of the cigarette and exhaled through a thousand tiny mouths, a veil of smoke trailing up his body. He showed every single one of his teeth. I want more. Norway flicked his cigarette butt out the open window and reached immediately for the pack. He lit a cigarette, took a drag, and followed the exhale with a handful of cheese puffs. He sighed a tapering squeak like a boiling tea kettle being removed from a burner. Mmm, salt and fat and nicotine, he said. That's the stuff right there. He plopped down onto the couch and offered the pack of cigarettes to Dean. Take one, he said, and sit down, man. You're making me nervous. Dean sat and collapsed practically on the wooden floor. Norway cocked an eyebrow made of a sharply jointed hind leg. <clears throat> Weirdo he said, and laughed. You do have a couch. He passed Dean the pack and lighter and watched while he lit up. Dean coughed dryly. He'd been smoking too much since the layoff, drinking too much, eating too much junk food. Whenever he told himself he needed to live healthier, his brain responded by asking why, and he could never come up with a satisfactory answer. I know what you're thinking, Norway said gesturing with his cigarette like an enthusiastic orchestra conductor. You're thinking you're crazy, or you're dreaming. You're thinking I'm not real. But, uh, boy howdy, kid, I'm as real as a motherfucker. I'm your fairy fucking godmother here to mold you into something special. No joke, Dino. I'm the best thing that's ever happened to you. Dean stared. Okay. You still don't believe I'm real, Norway said, cigarette gripped in the end of his tail. He held the ember toward Dean. I could put this out on your forehead right now. That'd show you I'm real. 
But I'm not gonna do that because I'm a good guy. I'm on your side. Prudence managed to slip past the weirdness and into Dean's brain. I think you better leave now. Norway left. <laughs> now that's crazy. Listen to me, Dean said, standing up, his heart racing even faster. Confrontation panicked him. Maybe that's why he hadn't told Helen she was making a mistake letting him go. That he'd earned his spot at the company. That he'd worked hard for years working on weekends, off hours. That it wasn't fair to be cast off for no reason. If he'd actually said those things then instead of thinking them to himself over and over every day since, maybe she would have changed her mind. Maybe his embarrassment wouldn't have curdled into rage. You need to get out of here right now. Please. Norway reclined into the couch and smoked his cigarette while eyeballing Dean, daring him to say something else, to make a move. Dean froze. He told himself he would grab the rat man by his shoulders and propel him to the door. He psyched himself up for it. He'd psyched himself up for a lot of things he never did recently. He took a deep breath, but before he could stand, three sharp knocks rattled his apartment door. Dean jumped, swiveling toward the sound, and when he looked back, Norway was gone. Jesus, he whispered. Fuck, trying to catch his breath. He tossed his smoldering cigarette out the still-open window. Cautiously, expecting the rat man to jump out at him any second from some hidden shadow, Dean opened the door. His downstairs neighbor, a guy a few years older than Dean who Dean never spoke to, but knew was named Matthew Peckman from the label on his mailbox, stood there in the spotlight of a hanging hallway lamp. Annoyance spread across his face. Man, man, want to keep it down? He said. It's like three in the morning and I don't know what you're watching, but it's loud as shit. He pointedly sniffed the air. Come on, cut out the smoking inside. Yeah, Dean said. Yeah, yeah, sorry. He stood there for a second, not sure what else to say, wanting to close the door so he could confirm that Norway had really gone, so he could try to convince himself that it had all been some sort of bizarrely realistic dream. Well, uh, he said, and was taking a step back when he heard a loud metallic snap. Instinct took over and he rushed at Matthew as the man tilted his head upward in slow motion. Dean threw his arms around him and fell back into his apartment. Half an instant later, the hallway lamp, a heavy box of rusted iron and cloudy bug-spattered glass, crashed onto the spot where Matthew had been standing. They stood, brushing themselves off, Matthew stammering incoherently and staring at the dented sides and broken glass that had been the lamp. Ah, oh, my God, you saved my life, man, he said shaking his head in disbelief. Dean managed to hold back a smile. I don't know if I'd go that far. Matthew couldn't seem to stop shaking his head. Hey, uh, I'm sorry for being a dick. I know you weren't trying to be loud, man. It's just cool, you know? I wanted to remind you. It was all right, Dean assured him, nodding in time with Matthew's shaking head. He watched that bewildered head walk downstairs until Matthew turned the corner and out of sight. Adrenaline flowed through Dean as he stepped back into his apartment and shut the door. But now, it was from pride. Probably the lamp wouldn't have killed Matthew if it hit him. But who could say for sure? It wouldn't have been pleasant. A voice rapped from behind him. Well, looks like everything worked out pretty perfectly there, huh? Talk about lucky timing. Slowly, even though he knew what he'd see, Dean turned. Norway lounged on the couch unlit cigarette between his lips. Using his tail, he lifted the lighter, flicked on a flame. 
Yeah, Dean, he said. You and me are gonna get along like gangbusters. And winked. Tell me, Norway said. The last few years of your life, what's the best you felt? I'm not even talking about since you know what. I'm talking years, my dude. Dean didn't answer. He wanted to glare angrily at the rat man, but stared at the floor instead. Eh, I thought so. You've gotten shit on for so long you think you deserve it. Well, I'm here to tell you there's nothing wrong with how you feel right now. You help people, you should be proud. You don't get credit for cleaning up your own mess, Dean said. A beat passed and Norway burst out laughing, all the mouths on his body chittering and guffawing and gasping for breath. <laughs> oh my god. Ah, you sweet innocent lamb. Huffing, wiping tears from his red eyes, he finally composed himself. Of course you do. College kids laughed and swore drunkily as they passed through the alley the next Thursday night. Three stories up, Norway leaned out the window and dangled a lit cigarette from his claws. I'm gonna drop it on them, he said. No respect for the people who live here. Don't do that, Dean said mildly, as he sat down next to Norway and handed him a Narragansett tallboy can. They're not bothering anyone. It was amazing how much helping people made Dean feel charitably about them. A couple weeks ago, he would have seethed at their carefree laughter. They're bothering me, Norway said, walking around like they're hot shit, just because they're in college. I went to college, Dean said opening his beer and leaning over next to Norway to look out the window as well. And the students walked away, blithely unaware of the people above. Dean recognized this group. One girl in particular with short red hair who always wore a jean jacket covered in pins and buttons, though from his fire escape, Dean could never tell what they were for. Punk bands and social justice groups seemed like to think. Yeah, not the way they go to college, Norway said. He flicked the cigarette and they watched it fall end over end to the pavement a few feet below the students. Missed on purpose. He looked at Dean, followed his gaze down to the girl just as she and her friends turned the corner. His eyes darted from Dean to the alley, back and forth, over and over, gears turning and cranking and picking up speed. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. An old man nearly fell off the sidewalk and would have surely broken his hip if Dean hadn't caught him by the elbows and steadied him. He was so impressed he offered to give Dean his granddaughter's phone number, but Dean smiled and said he couldn't let the man fall. It was common courtesy. The man wasn't sure what he tripped or slipped on. Something must have caused his foot to slide out from under him. Quick thinking, like he showed when that lady at the Takira started swelling and choking, was just what paramedics needed. Maybe Dean would think of studying to be one. That was the suggestion of the paramedics who eventually arrived on the scene and took the woman to the hospital. But really, Dean said, it was just lucky that he had an EpiPen on him. Weirdly, the restaurant didn't even serve food with peanuts. And the police never caught the person wearing a trench coat and ski mask who tried to rob the corner store, but who was foiled by Dean's timely entrance and shouted threats. For that one, he almost got on the nightly news, but the segment was cut for time. Some nights, Norway simply wasn't around, and Dean tried not to think too much about where he went or what he was up to. Tried not to worry that Norway was bolstering someone else's self-esteem, or if transferring his friendship to someone who would revel with him in the chaos and catastrophe instead of stopping it like Dean would. Those nights... He sat lonely on his couch or stood on the fire escape, leaning against the side of the house, watching the people and rats below. It was one of those nights, raw and cloudy, shadows draping the alley like a stage curtain. Dean had an open beer by his feet as he smoked, but was so awake at one in the morning that he was considering transitioning to something stronger. He took a final drag on his cigarette before climbing back inside, when he spotted motion at the end of the alley. Before he'd fully turned his head to look, he knew it was his girl. She walked alone, messenger bag slung over her shoulder, maybe coming from some late-night study session. Dean imagined he could hear the jangle of her buttons on her denim jacket as she passed below him, not noticing until almost too late that he actually did hear something scratching the ground below, and he knew exactly what it was. Couldn't believe that he hadn't seen this coming. He sprang into action, clambering down the rattling fire escape. Norway, covered head to toe, making him more a silhouette than a person, lunged from the shadows, releasing a lunatic yap as he jumped in front of the young woman. She screamed and stumbled back a step, swinging her bag at the rat man. It glanced off him, and though Dean was mostly paying attention to where he put his feet as he sped down the steps, he swore he saw a solitary rat become dislodged from Norway's body and scamper away along the alley wall. Hey! Dean yelled. Stop it! Get away from her! He ran towards Norway, but the rat man held his ground, and for a second Dean thought he would really have to fight him. But just as he cocked a fist back, Norway turned and ran, melting into the shadows. Breath coming fast and ragged, Dean turned to face the girl. He asked if she was okay, and waited while she caught her breath to answer. Night sounds rose around them, and he listened to rats chittering in the shadows and poking their heads from cracks between the buildings and the ground. 
It sounded like tinkling pins and buttons. What the fuck is the matter with you? Dean shouted, not caring if he woke his neighbors. He and Matthew remained on pretty good terms. Matthew didn't even complain when Dean missed his week to take the trash cans to the curb. Cigarette pinched between two claws, tail wrapped around a beer can. Norway lounged in his customary spot on the couch. Grab me some chips, will you? He said. This isn't fucking funny, Dean spat. You could have heard her. Her? Norway asked, overplaying his confusion. Her? After all that, don't tell me you didn't get her name. Dean hesitated. Jacqueline. She's in college. Grad school. Well, la-dee-da, Norway said. How about a phone number? Dean glowered at the rat man. Oh, come on, Norway goaded, poking in his direction with dozens of tails across his body. Big, strong man saving her from some pervert. Don't tell me Jackie didn't even offer to buy you a coffee sometime. Dean didn't answer, unable to come up with a good rejoinder. Finally, he settled on a half-hearted, That's not the point. Norway showed many teeth. <laughs> How about that? He tilted his head toward the kitchen. So, chips. The moment Dean stepped through the front door of the building, before he'd even taken the first step toward his apartment, he smelled smoke. Stale and fresh alike. He knew it was coming from his apartment, from him in Norway, and resolved that they'd both stop smoking inside. If his landlord dropped by, he'd be in big trouble. As it was, his security deposit was probably forfeit. He reached into the plastic bag he carried and extracted a bottle of Febreze, which he sprayed liberally around the entranceway, holding down the trigger and leaving a trail of spring rain-scented chemicals behind him as he walked upstairs. Opening the door to his apartment a crack, Dean slunk through and immediately closed it behind him. He noticed that he was doing this over the last few days, but didn't know quite why. Norway could leave any time he wanted to. He could open the door and introduce himself to the neighbors while Dean was at work or going to pick up their dinner. Anytime Dean's back was turned, the rat man could be off causing all manner of trouble. Had Norway sunk his claws into people all over town? Was Dean even as special or as important as he thought? Or was he just another replaceable cog, same as before? He pushed those thoughts from his mind. Norway sat heavily in his usual spot. It might have been Dean's imagination, but Norway seemed bigger, his stomach bulbous, expanding and contracting as he breathed. It didn't slow him down. A rat man sprang to his feet and snatched the plastic bag from Dean's hands. He pawed through the bag, discarding items on the floor. Sheets. Bath towels. He grinned. Dean, you dog, is tonight the big night? Having a sleepover with your special lady? To avoid eye contact, Dean glanced over Norway's shoulder toward the divot the rat man had worn onto the couch, covered in coarse brown and gray and black fur. Yeah, I uh, wanted to talk to you about that, he said. Do you think maybe I could uh, have the place to myself tonight? Norway stiffened for just a moment something harsh and dirty flashing in his eyes. Then it was gone. Yeah, sure, Norway said. Give you uh, lovebirds a little privacy. Of course, no worries. I'll check out the goings-on about town. Paint it red. He gripped Dean by the shoulders, forced him to look into his eyes. But, uh, Dean, buddy, he said sternly, 
Be careful. He dropped his hands from Dean's shoulders, flicked something onto the front of his shirt, and swept away, laughing through the window. Air burst from Dean's lungs, and he realized he'd been holding his breath. He looked down at his shirt front, stuck there with something milky and opaque, like a jellyfish washed up on a beach. With a flash of recognition and revulsion, Dean leapt back, swatting at his chest. The distended condom fell to the floor with a wet slap. Everything was bright and clean, the world untainted by anything cruel or unfair. Dean realized it was just the postcoital cloud, but he didn't care. He reveled in it. He stared at the ceiling and smiled. Footsteps paused outside the bedroom door, and for an instant, Dean panicked. Norway had returned to ruin Dean's moment of happiness. But when he looked, it was Jacqueline standing there, nude. He knew he shouldn't stare at her body, but he couldn't help himself. She smiled and crawled into bed next to him. Are you sure you don't smoke? She asked, nuzzling into the crook of his arm. Really smells like it. Dean's cigarettes were tucked in the back of a dresser drawer, his ashtray in the back of the cabinet below the kitchen sink. He couldn't say why he'd hidden them, why he'd told Jacqueline he didn't usually smoke, had just happened to have one that night when he saved her. The lie spewed from him unconsidered, and now he was committed. It's a friend of mine, he said. I've told him not to smoke in here, but he doesn't listen. But it's your apartment. I know, but he's sort of a big personality, Dean chuckled. There was no way to even begin to explain Norway. It's kind of hard to keep him in line, but, but he's a good guy. He'd do anything for me, you know? Jacqueline hummed, and Dean decided that it was because she was tired, not that she didn't believe him or thought he should stand up for himself. He said nothing and stared at the ceiling until he fell asleep, but the clarity didn't come back. Sharp beeping yanked Dean from sleep, and he jumped out of bed, his legs pulling the sheet to the floor, exposing Jacqueline's still naked body as she woke up too. For a moment, he just stood there, head swiveling back and forth as he got his bearings. After a second, it came to him. The smoke detector. Sure enough, now that he'd woken up a bit, he smelled smoke coming from somewhere outside his bedroom. Jacqueline sat up in bed, looking as panicked as Dean felt. I'm sure it's a battery or something, he said, trying to project confidence. I'll check it out. The false confidence was so Jacqueline would stay behind, because he knew he might not know what was happening, but was pretty damn sure who was behind it. But she followed him out to the living room, which was quickly filling with smoke billowing in from the kitchen. Hunching over, Dean made his way to the source of it. Melted aluminum, the remnants of one of his cheap aluminum pans, sat on top of a burner, and flames were already spreading to the counter. Dean reached out to turn off the stove, saw the molten metal coating the knob, and pulled his hand back, panicked and paralyzed. Did he have a fire extinguisher somewhere? He thought so. Wasn't it some sort of code thing that his landlord would have to provide one? But where could it possibly be? He crouched lower, coughing, looking around frantically. He duck-walked to the sink and opened the cabinet below it. Half-empty spray bottles and, in the back, his ashtray. But no fire extinguisher. For a second, he closed his eyes, trying to picture it in his head, to call back the memory of when he'd seen it last. He couldn't. They were going to have to evacuate. He was about to yell that to Jacqueline when he heard a loud hiss behind him. 
At first, he thought it was Norway, but when he turned, he saw Jacqueline standing there, blasting at the flames with an almost comically small fire extinguisher. Small as it was, though, it worked. The fire sputtered out, and Jacqueline darted away, returning with a towel, a brand new towel wrapped around her hand, which she wet in the sink and used to protect herself as she turned off the burner. Are you okay? She asked. When he nodded mutely, she added, How did this happen? Dean shrugged, his mouth flopping open and closed. He knew the real answer, but knew that that was absolutely not the right answer. Norway had set him up to be a hero, and he failed miserably. He had to be hiding in the walls, observing silently, biding his time, because the moment the door closed behind Jacqueline the next morning, Norway materialized in the living room. I teed it up for you and you whiffed, he said, shaking his head and rolling his beady glowing eyes. I knew it, Dean spat. I knew that was you. Well, yeah, Norway said. Who else would it be? You could have killed us. Well, excuse me for thinking you'd be competent enough to use a fire extinguisher. He screwed up his thin pink lips and spat a gob or mucus and hair onto the living room. Ugh, disgusting. He wiggled his tongue, tasting the air like a snake. Your girl did good, though. There might be something there. Maybe she's looking for a roommate. You stay away from Jacqueline, Dean said. Heat rose on his cheeks and neck. Anger, yeah, but embarrassment. And why? As if Jacqueline would leave him for a person made up of rats. Was he that inadequate? He realized that fear was real, which only made him feel worse about himself. And you, and you know what? He said, voice catching. Stay away from me. We're done. You can find some other idiot to latch onto. Norway slumped. Dean couldn't tell if he was actually offended or just affecting it. He pulled Dean in for a hug. Oh, baby, you don't mean that, he said, rubbing up and down Dean's back, the tips of his claws tickling him. You just relax and we'll figure this out. We'll get you back in her good graces. Get you back to hero mode. We're good for each other. Here. The smell of cigarette smoke. And suddenly there was a lit bud in front of Dean's face, delicately held in Norway's tail. The rat man placed it between Dean's lips, and Dean took a long, satisfying drag before plopping down on the couch. Norway handed him a beer. It was easier to go to Jacqueline's apartment. She probably preferred it anyway. A new set of sheets and a couple new towels, a few sprays of Febreze, a quick counter wipe down, or five minutes of sweeping, that couldn't make up for years of neglected cleaning. So after the night of the fire, when Jacqueline invited Dean over, he accepted. And then when he invited Jacqueline over and she suggested that he visit her again instead, he went along with that too. Inwardly, he felt relief. Relief that it was her idea, that he wouldn't have to worry about what might happen if she came to his apartment again. Each week that passed, Dean spent less time at his apartment, more at Jacqueline's. Accessories sprouted like mushrooms in her bathroom and bedroom. Dean's toothbrush, deodorant, a couple changes of clothes, and then most of his wardrobe. He got a haircut. He hardly smoked anymore, maybe three or four a day and never around her. Never when he knew he'd be seeing her within a few hours. Maybe she still smelled smoke on his clothes, but if she did, she didn't say anything. They spent a weekend at a friend's parents' lake house, 
It was the first time Dean had ever vacationed with a girlfriend, even just for a weekend. Admittedly, it was the first time he'd dated anyone long enough to call her a girlfriend since he was in high school. And that didn't count. Not really. But this was real. Dean felt good. He felt clean. When Dean's lease ended, Jacqueline said Dean should move in. They already practically lived together anyway. Left unsaid was that Dean still didn't have a job. He'd been looking, every day, searching for jobs and applying. He'd had a couple of interviews, but no luck. His employment was going to run out soon and there was no work on the horizon. Maybe he should lower his standards, but how low? Get out of an office environment and look for something more blue-collar. But that all required training he didn't have. Weeks passed, each one a tick of the clock hand toward the day when his unemployment check stopped coming. What did a person do when they couldn't get unemployment anymore? Go on welfare. Dean couldn't do that. He'd gone to college. He had a good job. He wasn't the sort of person who goes on welfare. More and more, Jacqueline paid for dinner. Pretty soon, she stopped offering to pay and just reached across the table for the check when it came. New sticks of Dean's brand of deodorant began appearing in her apartment. Toothbrushes, boxer shorts, jeans. This wasn't how it was supposed to go, Dean thought. He started smoking more. When Jacqueline suggested he moved into her apartment once his lease ended, Dean answered noncommittally, but he knew that he might not really have a choice. For all the good surrounding him, all the happiness, he hadn't felt so empty since the day after he'd been laid off. He didn't talk to Jacqueline about it. Norway, though. Norway would understand. More and more, Dean thought about his friend. The morning after the third time Jacqueline mentioned moving in together, Dean left her apartment after she went to class. He was going back to his apartment, but it felt like a betrayal. He promised himself it would only be for a few minutes, that he only needed a little help, and then he'd be back to Jacqueline in her apartment and his new, better life. In and out. He'd have a beer, smoke a cigarette, go back to Jacqueline's. The whole thing would take 20 minutes. Dean took a breath like he was about to dive underwater, opened the door and entered his apartment. Anne tripped right over Norway, who was lying in front of the door like a heart-sick dog. Hissing in pain, Dean rolled onto his back, still sprawled on the floor. Norway loomed over him. Dean, you ducking me, kid. Dean stood, brushing dirt off his pants and shirt front. He looked around. The apartment was filthy. Pizza boxes and greasy takeout containers strewn all over. Empty bottles lining the counters and windowsills. It reeked of cigarette smoke. What the hell have you been doing, Norway? He asked, rhetorically. The answer was scrawled in potato chip crumbs and dead ants. Yeah, she doesn't want to stay here, is that it? Does that bitch think she's too good for you? From the beginning, every time he was around Norway, Dean felt a mix of fear and inadequacy, tempered with bursts of pride and strength and relief. It was intoxicating, like a tranquilizer syringe jammed in his neck. I mean, it worked, but it wasn't his choice. Maybe it was the best for him. Maybe it was just what someone else thought was best for him. But once it was injected, Dean couldn't know for sure. Couldn't think straight. But now... Standing in the disaster area that was his apartment, looking at the angry man made of writhing rats, 
Hearing that verminous word slip between Norway's gray and yellow teeth, Dean felt disgust. Rage flared inside him. The sensation, the mirror image of how he'd felt when he saved people. The righteous anger that he felt sitting across from Helen, but all the shame and humiliation burned away. The anger wasn't for him. It was for Jacqueline. He wasn't ashamed of himself, but of Norway. Embarrassed that the rat man seemingly had nowhere else to go. No way to spend his days but to pine away for Dean. Stuffing himself with junk food because he couldn't feed on Dean's false, puffed-up pride. The mess had surprised him. Not because he thought Norway would keep clean, but because he'd assumed Norway had other places to go. Dean had thought he needed Norway. He never considered that Norway needed him. The anger that had flashed like a magician's handkerchief dissipated, but instead of revealing a dove, all that remained when it was gone was melancholy. The bitterness that came from reliving his lowest moments in the HR office over and over again had faded. Maybe not forever, certainly not forever, but for now, it was all the opening Dean needed. He pushed past Norway without speaking, grabbed clean clothes from the back of his closet, about the only unspoiled spot in the apartment. Norway watched, his burning eyes narrowed to slits, his jaw pulsing as the rat body there spasmed like it was going to rip itself free. Thousands of teeth all over his body gritted and ground together. It sounded like gravel under tires. I'll be back in two days, Norway, Dean said. I don't want you to be here. He shut the door behind him and walked downstairs, trying to ignore the shouts and the curses and the sounds of solid things breaking. Jacqueline stood in the middle of her living room when Dean walked in, her eyes crossed, brow furrowed, lips pursed, and she looked so much like the disapproving sitcom wife confronting her boorish husband that Dean almost laughed. But she was pissed. He bit his tongue. She glared at him, waiting. He couldn't take the electric silence for more than a few seconds. What's up? Her answers somehow managed to both be a complete non-sequitur and make perfect sense. I've never met any of your friends. I almost doubted you had any. I have friends, Dean said. Immediately, he wondered why he said it. What was he trying to defend? I know, Jacqueline said. The sort who would do anything for you, right? And that's when it clicked. His brain spun as he desperately tried to think of something to say. Some words that would explain everything. That would absolve him of his part in Norway's schemes and chaos. Nothing came to him, and he realized that it was because there was no excuse. Something inside him shriveled and shrank. All the confidence and happiness and power he'd just felt moments ago leached out of him. I'm a bad person. He hadn't realized he had said it aloud until he saw the look on Jacqueline's face. Shock and anger and pity and disgust. It's actually true? You... Jesus, your friend called and told me, but I didn't really... I didn't want to believe him. That was your friend who assaulted me? So what? So you could save me and I'd swoon over my big manly protector? She laughed bitterly. <laughs> fuck me. It worked. Who the fuck am I? It's, it's not your fault. I know it's not my fault. It's your fault and your shitty friends and, and fucking societies. I don't know. Just... just go away. Jacqueline, he began. Stop. What do you possibly think you could say? You can't weasel your way out of this one, Dean. He stood in the doorway, 
eyes downcast. He slunk away. Jacqueline was right. There wasn't anything to say. But she was also wrong. He wasn't a weasel, but he was close. Rats build nests. Norway took over the living room couch. A depression marked where he always sat. Crumbs and hair and stains from his spilled beer ringed it. Crumpled beer cans and jaundiced cigarette butts poked from below the couch and under the cushions like half-exposed artifacts at an archaeological dig. Norway perched amidst it all, the king of disarray. Well, hello, Dean, he said, beaming. You're home early. Dean sputtered and swore, unable to string two words together. What is it, Dean? Norway asked. What is it, boy? Why? Why would you do that? Dean finally managed. Rattling laughter spilled from the hundreds of mouths. Tiny teeth clacked together and puffs of air squeaked from rotten lungs. Dean, I'm a rat. You said you'd help me. A strained, pleading tone crept into Dean's voice, and he hated it. Hated himself for letting Norway win. For the first time that he could remember, he'd been happy to be himself. And now he'd been kicked back down the ladder, spat on for good measure. Sadness and wretched apathy warred within him. All he wanted to do now was lie down on the floor and never get up. He didn't have the energy for anger. I did help you, Norway said. I did so much for you, Dean. And what'd you do for me? Uh, Give me some beer? Some cigarettes? I made you into a man. And you bought me snacks. I never asked for this. Oh, fuck off, Norway groaned. Everything you've ever done in your sad little life has asked for this. Don't complain because you got what you want. It's gauche. No, 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 this is not... He stopped. Norway was right. He had given Dean exactly what he wanted. Admiration. A sense of worth. Power. He and Norway were tangled together, and he had no idea how to extricate himself. He collapsed onto the couch next to the writhing body of rats and... What a cigarette. At first, Dean called Jacqueline, texted when she didn't answer. He kept his phone plugged in and charged next to him, jumping whenever it buzzed. But it was always telemarketers or reminders of bills, too. Eventually, he let the phone die. He knew Jacqueline well enough to know they were through. For over a week, he barely left the couch. He didn't shower or change his clothes. He drank and smoked and ate terrible food. He fumed and he schemed. He thought several times that he'd be better off dead, but didn't possess the drive or wherewithal to do anything about it. God, Norway said. You stink. You need something, huh? A little pick-me-up. He bared his thousands of teeth. The words percolated slowly through Dean's brain. He bared his teeth, too. Not just any car would do. If the driver was too slow, too careful, they might be able to stop in time or swerve out of the way and avoid the accident Dean would rescue them from. Dean and Norway clung to the shadows at the foot of the alley, waiting for the perfect vehicle to approach. Pools of light from street lamps dotted the road. Something stank like sour milk and dirt. Him or Norway. Or both. He wondered if neighbors could smell them. If their foulness had spread through the building, up and down the alley. If it was confined to Dean, or if it was something more. Standing silent in the dark gave him too much time to think. 
Every day gave him too much time to think. Usually it brought him down, made him feel worse about himself. But sometimes it gave him good ideas. Well, he hoped. Lights appeared at the curve. A rumble and hiss of an 18-wheeler maintaining speed. Norway perked up at the headlights, but slumped when he saw the massive machine they were attached to. That was too much. If a safe driver in a compact car could swerve too easily, this was the opposite. The truck approached steadily, looming ever larger. Dean watched Norway out of the corner of his eye. The rat man scratched his crotch and hummed a couple tuneless bars. Perfectly content. Unsuspecting. Not unlike Dean the moment before he walked into Helen's office. Before Norway could react, before Dean's innate sense of self-preservation could override his brain, Dean grasped him in a bear hug and threw both himself and the squirming mass of rats into the street, directly into the oncoming grill of the truck. Everything happened at once. Sensations jumbled together in an indistinguishable morass. There was pain. Oh, there was pain. Dull pain, sharp pain, burning pain, tingling, almost numb pain. Every species of pain that existed made a home in Dean's body as he collided with the truck and flew through the air as he skidded to a stop on the pavement. He heard the screech of breaking tires on asphalt, smelled the bitter tang of burned rubber. All around him, crushed on the ground, tumbling through the air, snapped in half along the curb, Dean saw rats. Broken, crushed, and destroyed rats. The paramedics who arrived told him how lucky he'd been, how his body had seemingly been cushioned by something. They didn't put two and two together, even as they bumped the stretcher over rat corpses gagging at the smell. There were more rats out there. Dean knew that. Knew that they were always hiding and waiting in dark and sour places. But these rats were gone. Norway was gone. Dean couldn't feel his face, but he hoped that he smiled. That was Timothy Mudie's Rat's Alley as read by Matt Bradford. Matt Bradford is a Canadian voice actor, writer, and editor who can be heard on the No Sleep podcast, ZombieCast, and Video Game Outsiders. Outside of the booth, he can be found chasing his kids, hunting down voicing gigs, and gaming into the wee hours. You can find him on Twitter at MattoMcFly. Thank you, Matt. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at talestoterrify.com. And if you've got a minute to spare, we'd love it if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a rating or a review. 
Ratings and reviews are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. It helps us expose more victims, I mean listeners, to our dark influence. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we sink our teeth into more Tales to Terrify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.